You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features John Burnett. John is an adjunct professor, entrepreneur, and contributing business and political commentator on TV, radio, and digital media programs. He also has over 25 years of experience at some of the world's top financial services and business information companies. Looking at John's credentials, you would think that he had a very traditional path to success. But his story is anything but. John went from a job at a check cashing and jewelry shop to working at a grocery store to eventually landing a position at Dean Witter, one of the largest stock brokerage and securities firms that was eventually acquired by Morgan Stanley. John has most certainly charted his own course in both his academic and professional pursuits, even if it meant turning down the stability of a city job that would have paid him five times more than an entry-level role in finance. But his choice has paid off, and he is a living testament to what persistence and intense focus can get you. So without further ado, take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. John, welcome to the December 26er podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You do interviews a lot. You're featured a lot. So I I know you're a pro at this. (laughs) I am anticipating a very lively discussion. Okay, we'll be live. (laughs) So let's jump into it. Tell me, who is John Burnett? Well, I can't describe myself without first describing my parents. Mm -hmm. My parents were born in the South. My mom was born in Georgia, Savannah, Georgia. And my dad was born right outside of Raleigh-Durham area. And they both came to New York City with a hope and a dream. Uh, they, they had a tough, tough life uh, under Jim Crow laws. And they came here with uh, an eighth grade education. And then fast forwarding uh, six years later, I mean, uh, several years later, they had six kids, children, rather. And uh, here I am the seventh and final one. And you, so you're the baby of your family. Yes. I was born in the People's Republic of Brooklyn, <laughs> raised in Queens, and I currently live in Harlem. So... I, I want to dig more into your childhood and that foundation that you sure. got. Um, but if people know you or they follow you, they may look at where you are now and have a concept or an idea of where you started out. So I really want to make sure I want to give people insight into your upbringing. So your parents were older, right? right. Um, born in 1920s and in, in, in that time frame. 25, 26, yes. respectively. OK, um, so you're they the, were traditionalists. Very traditional. You grew up in very the church. conservative. Yeah. Were they as conservative as you are? You yes. OK, so you grew but up. They were in, Democrats, but, you know, that's it. what it is. Yeah, I love them anyway. Let's not bury the lead. John is a Republican, <laughs> which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, so when you were growing up with parents within, you know, eighth grade education, they were rooted in the church, right? Yes. What was their dream for you as you understood it? Well, they they always talked about the sky's the limit, believe in yourself. We didn't get an education, but you will. It's not even an option. And the value of hard work, the dignity of hard work is the key. And just hearing the stories, specifically from my father, talking about Uncle Quincy. Uncle Quincy, during 1929 stock market crash, bought a new model uh, T Ford, and he was doing so many other things. Why? He owned his own land. Wow. And he was a sharecropper. So that's one, just looking at that. And as I was like a little kid, just hearing that, because I can't, I don't know where the passion for business comes from. But I think 
you keep hearing those things over and over and over, and you think about Uncle Quincy, even though you've never met him, right? Don't even know what the stock market is. Don't even know what a crash is. But the, the foundation and elements of entrepreneurship, owning your own. So whether it's good times or bad times, you can do well. You could be the master of your own fate. So I find that interesting because when we talk as a people about our ancestors who were sharecroppers, immediately it's always painted in a completely negative light. They never could get ahead. The system was designed for them to be behind and always owe. Um, and we were making money or getting rich, you know, helping someone else to get rich. Now you're telling the story of your uncle who was a sharecropper but was able to make moves at a time when everybody was suffering. Right. He's and, my granduncle. And and that was driven by the ownership of the land. Absolutely. Do you now, know, I, I don't know how he acquired it. That's my question. Like at the in that era, how he was able to acquire this land. I'm not sure. Um, but but you know, the, during peaks and valleys, I wouldn't be surprised if he even because because when when a situation like that happens, uh there, there's there's when you look at triumph and disaster. Many times it disguises each other. They're imposters of each other. So maybe perhaps he even expanded in 1929 when other mm -hmm. people were selling, he was buying. So there's always opportunities, even in disaster or triumph. And we have talked about that on the show and that that is an area in which I am in agreement in that people create, they have hysteria around economic downturns, but that is when generational wealth can be created. Right. You're buying low Absolutely. and holding and waiting for the, the economy to turn. If I could add something, mm -hmm. during um, the Great Recession, I was at Merrill Lynch and I took a, I just saw the handwriting on the wall and I said, you know what? I raised my hand for a package and I was hoping to get one. Really? Because packages get lower mm -hmm. <laughs> as time moves on. So now I got a great package, got a black car home, the whole nine, based on my, you know, the level that I was uh, able to attain at that time. But, you know, analyzing the market, when I saw, okay, the tarp coming in, when I saw and heard, wait a minute, Warren Buffett is putting $5 billion in Bank of America? Guess what? John Burnett bought several thousand shares of Bank of America because Buffett is not losing $5 billion. Right. So, so during that time period, you know, as far as a couple of years, he tripled his money. And John Brandt was right, right there with him. So I definitely want to talk about the Great Recession and you taking that package and how you were able to navigate that. Um, but let's go back first. You've always been enterprising. Yes. Since you were a kid and, and had a... Since I was five years old. Since you were five. So how did that start? How did you get into business and this idea? Yeah, of my mom would give me 50 cents uh, as a al weekly allowance. And I had to tithe a nickel and actually fill out, fill out. I'm like, I'm a kid. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I have to learn. So, uh, so I, I would tithe a nickel. So I had 45 cents. It was just not enough. I could, of course, at five years old, you mm -hmm. couldn't work. So what I did was I spent half of that, about 20, 25 cents on, uh, on snacks and goodies for myself. And then the rest, I would buy what my brothers and sisters would like. And I sold the snacks and goodies during the week to my brothers and sisters for twice the value. Marked it up. Mm -hmm. Marked it up. So that lasted for a little bit. But I didn't know, but I was learning, you have to have the right price. Because at the wrong price, demand will not happen or will go away very quickly, mm -hmm. which it did. Then a few years passed, went by in the fourth grade. I used the same concept, but I had a little bit more money at that time. 
bought a lot of candy, sold it to um, to my classmates. Uh, the price got higher just before lunch. Then even after lunch, it got even higher. But I was able to sell candy in class until the teacher said, what are you doing? Asked me what I, what I was doing. She found out that I was selling candy. She said, don't sell anymore and confiscated everything. She took your inventory. Absolutely. I didn't see it as taking my inventory, right? Well, I saw it as, as taking the inventory now. I mean, back then. But now I understand it as government regulations <laughs> dictating <laughs> what you should do, right? So all these lessons learned. Then uh, a few more years passed by. Um, I was having oatmeal one Saturday morning while watching cartoons. And I started reading the back of the box like, wow, oatmeal cookies. Well, maybe I could make my own snacks even cheaper. So I baked cookies. My mom and my sisters came down. What's that I smell? So, oh, you baked cookies. So they tried it and they said, wow, this is better than Famous Amos. <laughs> I said, really? I said, well, how much would you pay? So we talked pricing. I said, okay, you'll all have a batch starting on Monday to sell on your jobs. So that lasted for a little while until uh, I like to say I had supply chain disruption <laughs> where, well, now I say that, when my mom said, well, you have to start buying the eggs, the milk, the oatmeal. I'm like, this is supply chain <laughs> disruption. <laughs> and then looking back at that, I said, wow, there's accounting profits and economic profits. Not knowing those terms, I said as a kid, well, you know what? It's not economically viable when I factor in the labor versus, you know, buying everything. So not only was it was it not profitable from an accounting perspective or worth the value when I added my labor, it's not wasn't valuable to me, you know, economically in terms of economic mm -hmm. accounting. So and then fast forwarding um, years later, I was offered an opportunity to pass out flyers. Well, first, my father's. I wanted a job, paper route or whatever. My father said, no, you will focus on school. Mm -hmm. And my old man, you, you don't, I mean, the old school, you don't talk back. You follow instructions. End of discussion, yes. Right. Or, you, or you're laying, laid out on the floor, <laughs> actually seeing stars, <laughs> right? So there was this Jewish man who walked up to me and my friends. It was a half day of school that day. And he had asked, which one of you kids want a job? No one else responded. I was like, well, I can't leave him. I can't leave money on the table without exploring. So I asked him, doing what? And he had he was eating a slice of pizza, sauce dripping on all down his face. I'm like, I don't know if I want to work with this guy. So then he said, passing out flyers, how much? Three dollars. It was below minimum wage. Three dollars a day, three dollars. Three dollars an hour. An hour, okay. It was below minimum wage. Um, and I said, I'll take it. So your dad had already said you couldn't work. Right. Okay. Uh when do I start? When, when can you start? Now. Okay, let's start now. Back back then, it was pay phones. Uh, dropped a quarter, told my sister, tell dad I got a job. I'll be home at 6. She says, okay, I'm leaving here at 530 because I can't take all that screaming and hollering. <laughs> when you whip your butt, I'm like, it is what it is. So I said, okay, it'll just last the day, right? Uh, I might not even be able to go to school tomorrow, right? Right, you might be in the hospital after So I walked day. in, he says, I thought I told you not to get a job and focus on school. It's just passing out flyers. I can, you know, I'll get my schoolwork done. And the thing is, you, you, you show respect, you answer, and you keep walking. <laughs> and I went up the stairs, nothing else happened. Like, great, got my job. So you actually climbed the ladder. Yeah, with literally. that job, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, and I was looking for more hours. And he said, okay, come in, clean up the toilets, you know, sweep, do, you know, do the dirty, dirty fingernail uh, jobs, as I call it. 
and I was able to earn more hours. Then the there was an Italian guy there, and we built a rapport. And he started bringing me behind the counter, showing me how to appraise gold and diamonds. Really? Yeah. Then I think the uh, I think they had to test me if they could trust me. So uh, Stan said, uh, you know, why don't you come to my house? I got some stuff to move. Don't worry, I'll pay you. I'm like, okay, cool. So I walk in the house. The house was immaculate. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to his father. His father was a rabbi because Stan was the owner and, and uh, Richie was the manager. So I went upstairs. I started moving some of the electronic equipment, bringing it to his car. The second trip, I noticed on the other side of the bed, there was this cash as though it it was dropped. Mm -hmm. And I said, here it is. He's always talking about he doesn't have enough money for extra hours. He's got all this cash. So I made the second trip, then came back, picked up all the cash, and and. I balled it up and slapped it on his face. Don't ever tell me you don't have enough cash, Stan. <laughs> and we chuckled. And then the next day, Richie said, come on, you're going to be working behind the counter now. Don't worry. We don't need you to pass out flyers. If you want extra money, you can clean up. But for now on, your, your responsibility is behind the counter. And how old were you at this point? Uh, I think I was 14 or 15. And I said, what changed? He said, you passed the test. I said, what test? Remember that stack of cash? There was not 120 missing. He says, you're an ethical guy. We brought you behind the counter. We had Eli coming from um, 47th Street, laid out all the gold, you know, every so often. And I was right there picking out the gold. Uh, we would, I would buy the Richie. Sometimes Richie would leave the shop and I was there running things. So you're like 14, 15 years old. Right. And it, it, and it was about four counters or so inside a check cashing place. It was, it was a small gold shop, but they, he left me there running the show. A teenager. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I was and I was not only and I was the thing is my parents always taught me whatever you do, have fun with it. Do it with passion. I would pass out flyers and I said, okay. I might get fired if there's too many flyers in the street. So I would say, look, you got to take this flyer because I can't lose my job. And people would chuckle and I would say funny things. So it was a clean street, right? And next thing you know, people started coming in with the flyer in their hand. Mm -hmm. So I showed value in return, more foot traffic. Got it. So to hear this story, very enterprising from a young age, parents who are very conservative, harping on every uh, education, the youngest of seven children. To me, I would hear this and immediately assume, OK, the path has been laid. John probably went and got went to B school right away, got a degree. Not at all. And, you know, went to Wall Street. But that's not your story. Not at all. You didn't go to, to college or at least a four year school right away, right? Uh, I went to a two year okay. uh, BMCC. So how? I paid my own tuition. So were you excelling academically while you were doing so great? Only, only in business courses. I was a C-plus student in high school. And I how did, only received A's in business law, accounting, anything related to business. And how did your parents respond to that? Uh, they weren't happy. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't happy. So did you say, okay, I'm just going to go to a two-year school because you felt you couldn't cut it? I didn't know what else to do. Okay. Because after the gold, I mean, I really excelled uh, in the gold shop. In fact, uh, there was one gangster that walked in and he bought a lot of gold one Christmas, took out a lot of cash, paid all paid it all in cash. And I asked him, where do you work? He said, well, you know, I do, I'm into a lot of things. I'm like, what? Like what? <laughs> and he owned the X-rated theater down the block. So very quickly, when when someone came in, they sold a nice diamond ring, men's diamond ring, who uh, had an onyx with a... Uh, uh, a diamond in the middle and some other pieces. So I was like, wow, I polished it up 
it looked brand new. So I said, hey, Rich, I'll be right back. I went across the street and I asked the lady, the booth was outside. I asked the lady, I said, I forgot the gentleman's name. Is, is he around? Why? Uh, I'm from the gold shop. I have something for him. So this big, big guy came out. He looked both ways. Come in. I was like, I can come in there? <laughs> I'm only like 15. I'm only like 16, right? Come in. So we're walking in the x theater. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is probably not a good move. So we went to his office. He looked at it. It's like, wow, this is really nice. How much you want for it? I only bought it for like a hundred, hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, actually maybe 150. And I said, 1200 bucks, $1,200. Right. I figured I can get 750. We settled on 800. He said, turn around. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the mob. Dylan, Dylan. <laughs> I should have done business with the mob. He's about to put a so I turned around and then my heart is beating so fast. She says, okay, turn back around. The money was right there. He says, I, I can't let you see where my safe is. I said, oh, okay. There's the money. So I took the money. I wouldn't dare count it in front of him. Right, of course. <laughs> Put it in my pocket, and I, I went to run out. He says, wait a minute. This is an X-rated theory. You can't walk out on your own. <laughs> you want me to lose my license? I'm like, okay. So they all walked me out, and he said, "One last, hey, kid, come here. You see this face? And he pointed at one of his guys. So he was a big, mean-looking guy. He says, okay, if this thing isn't real, that's the first face you're going to see. <laughs> he said, I said, it's real. And I ran back to the shop and I was like, okay. Done with again. that. But I made the shop a lot of money, mm-hmm. like six, at least six, like 650 bucks. So, so fast forwarding, the gold shop moved to Long Island. It was too far for me to work after school. So I started at Pathmark. Uh, I was a cart boy. And I figured out a way to rack up as many carts as possible. And I had a system. And the front desk manager... I said, come here, John. I'm going to put you on the cashier. I'm like, I don't want to be a cashier. No, no. You're having way too much fun out there. <laughs> you got your own system going on, right? But that was doing it with passion. Next thing you know, cashier. Let, and I was, I was, I memorized the circular, right? So when stuff went and scanned, I just knew the prices. Then he brought me in to work with the bookkeeper. Wow. Where I was counting out tills, doing accounting stuff. That job, right? And working in the gold shop got me an opportunity to work for Dean Witter. Wow. Uh, because I, at that time, after school, working at Pathmark, I was paying my own tuition, not going to class, uh, hanging out. Next thing you know, they said, well, your GPA is like 1.2. If it doesn't come up next semester, we'll have to release you. That's it. No one releases me. I'll leave on my own terms. Bye. And I left. So you didn't think, let me get my grades together because education is key. You thought, no, you're not going to kick me I out. I felt like they weren't teaching me how to make money. So for you, it was about being financially stable and, and well off. Yeah, Bill, I love commerce. Mm-hmm. And I figured, okay, that's where I can learn. I wasn't learning what I needed to learn. So I said, I'm going where the money is, the World Trade Center. And I got, long story short, I applied the first time they wanted to give me a mail uh, delivery job. I said, no way. Uh, it just didn't fit me. And a, a guy in my church, similar age, a couple of years older, he started off in the mailroom. Then he got a, a, a entry level job in the marketing department. I'm like, damn, maybe I should have stayed with the, with the mailroom. Mm-hmm. So about a year later, he told me, he went to my church. He told me who was, in, uh, who helped him, a man named, named Jim Luigi. Never met him. I said, okay, I'm going back to Dean Witter tomorrow. Fill out another application a year later. I did. 
fill out the application. The receptionist said, okay, thank you. We'll be contacting you. I walked out. I'm like, wait a minute. I put on a very good suit, had the, had the, the square pocket square. I was tight. I walked back in. I said, excuse me, it's Mr. Jim Luigi in. So you just asked for this guy by name. Right. And she said, do you have an appointment? I said, no, but he's expecting me. Never met him, never spoke to him. That was before email. And some people say, you lied. Uh, I don't see it as lying. It's HR. They're expecting talent to walk in the door. And I'm talent. <laughs> and that's the way I viewed it. Next thing you know, this lady came running out. She said, right this way, Mr. Burnett. I was like, this is working out well. I had never been called Mr. Burnett. Mm -hmm. Mr. Burnett was always my father. And how old were you? I was 19. Okay. Right? So so then they they interviewed me. They said, wow, I don't have anything. Well, she interviewed me. She gave me to a coworker. She found something, a margin uh, analyst. She said, it's a stretch, but you know what? I'm not sure. I said, if you send me on the interview, I'll get the job. She said, well, your skills are fungible. I didn't even know what fungible was <laughs> at that time. I was like, yeah, it's fungible. <laughs> <laughs> I am fungible. <laughs> so, so next thing you know, I went on the interview. I closed it. So let's back up a little bit because... When you think about, you know, Dean Witter, which, you know, doesn't even exist anymore, right? Just got folded into what Morgan Stanley. Yes. Um, but I'm a Dean Witter guy, though. Yeah. OK, so you're a Dean Witter guy. But coming from, you know, you're, you're scrappy, obviously. You've always been. But, you know, excelling at the jewelry store gig, excelling at Pathmark. But how did you translate that experience to acing an interview at a financial institution? When you grow up in a household with six older brothers and sisters, the eldest one is old enough to be your father, 20 mm -hmm. years older. Then you had parents. You had to listen a lot. We played the dozens. Well, not with the parents, uh, with my siblings. And in a large family, you're, you're used to the wit, the thinking mm -hmm. on your feet. And I didn't realize it at the time. And this is the reason why in terms of parenting is so important in terms of how you communicate. Because the things that my father always said, I think, and my mom, I think it somehow those seeds were deeply planted in my subconscious that fed my conscious mind. Mm -hmm. Because my father always said, boy, you got to create your own breaks. Nothing's going to be given to you. So in a sense, I created my own break. And, and you have to do something different. You can't just go by the status quo. And when I look back on those days... And we'll get into the topic later, but I'll throw a plug in now. When you deregulate, lower taxes, businesses will create jobs and give opportunities to, to people that they would not ordinarily give an opportunity to. I see what you just did there. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And that day, I walked in the same day as another Black guy that, that, that graduated from Boston University and had, I think, a, a 1,200 or close to it SAT score. Bright right, brother. And we were doing the same job. And here it is. I was a C plus student. But did you have going into that interview? I'm sure you had the soft skills and the confidence um, to build a connection with your interviewer. But in hindsight, did you have the vocabulary and the financial literacy or acumen I to knock not, that part of that? I did not part? have the formal financial literacy, okay. not the formal. Um, but he, he, here's the keys to success. One, work ethic. Two, attitude. Don't focus on circumstances. Focus on, on the goal and what you're trying to attain. Don't focus on what you don't have. If I focused on what I didn't have, I would have never walked into Dean Witter that day. True. Right? You have to mold and shape your environment. Otherwise, the environment will mold and shape you. Mm -hmm. 
So you couldn't tell me I wasn't going to get a job that day because my backup plan, right, was to come back the next day and just sit there until they gave me a job. But the name came back to my, my memory. I walked in, dropped the name, and I made it happen that day. Well, God made it happen that day. So you get hired at Dean Witter, going to this role. I presume you're learning on the job. It was one of the toughest things. And people, <laughs> Scott, 19 years old, we're hiring that young now? There's some people, there were grown-ups in that department, of course, at higher levels, but we were doing essentially the same work. Were people asking you, where'd you go to school? Uh, actually, they, they didn't. Okay. Most people thought, I already had a degree, not only in that department, but as I moved up, mm -hmm. my shoes were always shine. It wasn't, wasn't the most expensive shoes, right? And most people don't even know the hustle. I used to go, because I didn't want to ask my parents for money, I used to go to the thrift shop where they had cardboard boxes, mixed, matched, matched everywhere. I picked out a jacket, okay, it's a little large, but I'll get it slimmed down, mm -hmm. just cut down, right? Pants a little big, I'll get it tailored. Bought suits for $33, 50 bucks. Went to uh, my Dominican brothers in Low East Side. They hooked, they hooked the brother up, throw a hanky in, 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 the, um, in the pocket. Nice tie, always keep your shoes shine. I looked mm -hmm. like, like I was a, a college material, but it didn't start there. I was always in suits. My father was a minister that eventually became a pastor. I was going to church when I was in the in my mom's womb. Right. I could show you pictures when I was two and three, and and three piece suits with a pocket square, <laughs> as a little kid. So so nothing had changed. That that's who that's who John was. And when you look at the traditionalists, the old school movies, that's how people dressed. Right. Even if you were a dishwasher, you couldn't tell that my father didn't have an eighth grade education just by looking at him. You couldn't tell my mom, same thing, mm -hmm. eighth grade education. What you saw, wow, it's a very strong, powerful man and woman. And people used to say, wow, were you, ask me rather, were you in the military? No, why? You walk so erect and you walk with authority. My father always said, boy, walk with your chin up and walk perpendicular. Those that, that, that leaning over, you, you'll, you'll have plenty of time for that years later when you're lying flat. Right now, mm -hmm. Stand like a man and walk with walk like a man. Walk with authority. Well, let me ask you this. I'm so, gonna... so, so, so that that shapes that shapes your mindset and your entire thinking. Don't focus on what you don't have. So the environment that you were in warranted that persona, the suits, all of that. Even though that's who you are inside and outside of the office, there are people though that will hear this and say, "This is respectability politics." So I have to put on a suit to command respect and for people to view me a certain way. Well, look, what, what, whatever you do, you mm -hmm. right. But, but whatever you do, there are the, we live in a, a world of cause and effect, mm -hmm. right? So, so many times you follow a certain path until you can dictate your own, right? So, so if if, I, if you're all tattooed up and all this other stuff, I'm not judging anybody, but. There's consequences with it depending upon what path you choose. Now, my thing is, this is my thing, right? You, could, you don't have to follow this advice. Do you? But as far as John Burnett, I'm, I'm, I'm walking based upon my values and carrying myself the way I think a man should carry himself, mm -hmm. period. I don't look down on anybody else. You do you, and I'm doing me. Right. I'm just saying whatever, and, and, and if you are tattooed up, just using that as an example, 
carry yourself with respect. Mm -hmm. Respect is also not just outer appearance, it's how you communicate and treat other people. It's a lot of different things, the tangible and intangible. So you had the look, right? So you you had the, the tangible for sure. I'm sure you had the people skills. But it was a real look. I didn't have to fake it. Right. You had that. But at some point, you get in there, you get the job, you you have the, the the tailored suit that you put together and all that, but now you got to deliver. So how did you get up to speed to be able to do the job well? That was hard. The thing is, I put in extra hours. Mm-hmm. I was even told to break the law. Really? Yeah. In what go- way? By going to punch out at five, even if you haven't finished work, and then go back to, to the desk and finish work. Got that was it. against the law. I'm not blowing a whistle. I got a good job. Wasn't paying a whole lot, but it was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what? I got to put in extra time. The reason why I had to put in a lot of extra time, even after I had learned the job, because during the day I was so busy trying to learn other people's job and mm-hmm. other complex things while they were there. I said, you know, I don't mind spending extra two or three three hours after work to finish up my own because I'm learning so many other skills. Right. Which served you because you that, climbed the ladder within within that, Wall Street. That served me well. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I always reach for the stars. I reached for this opportunity to, uh, well, first, let me back up. I had an opportunity, I think, around 23 years old to be a correction officer. Really? It was it was a struggle. My, my best friend, that's still my friends today, uh, state trooper, uh, police officer, <laughs> detective, sergeant, like they really moved up and did well. But- at that time, 23 years old, it was it was hard, and and one, and I had two two family friends that that were correctional officers. Oh, I already spoke to the captain. When you come in, John, you'll get all the overtime you need. You know, you, you'll easily make eighty thousand dollars. So you were already on Wall Street, yeah, in that that in, part in that of job. your career. And how much money were you making on Wall Street? I, I started at, at sixteen thousand dollars. So somebody's telling you you can come over here, may not be the same level of prestige, but get your overtime, make eighty. Probably a pension tied to that. And you thought Oh, about no, it was. Yeah, you thought it about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told my parents about it, prayed. Um, in fact, police debar- department did the background check and everything, clean, of course, because I was bonded, fingerprinted with the feds right. at 19 when I started on D- at Dean Witter. So I was clean as a whistle. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was prophesied to me because I was looking for an answer from God. I said, wow. I don't think I'll be happy with that correction officer job. But hey, you know, I'll do my 20 years, mm-hmm. get out, do something else, have a pension. So it was said to me, you're looking for an answer. God said he's with you whatever way, whatever you're trying to figure out, whether you whether it's this or that, he's with you regardless. And at that point, call me crazy. I said, you know what? If God is with me, I can do it, whatever it is. And there was nothing, no other opportunity at work that I could see. So I looked at, wow, guarantee, safety net. Mm -hmm. Then here it is, no no formal education, $16,000 a year, and nothing that I can see in terms of corporate vision. I said, you know what? I'm going to stay right here at Dean Witter. The look on my father's face, like... Friends, family, even some coworkers, a couple of coworkers knew what I had. So in my coworkers hand. knew you had that opportunity. Yeah, and I said, you know what? I said, well, you know what? And I turned it down. The NYPD officer said that was doing a background check for corrections said, You're a clean kid. Are you crazy? <laughs> like there's people lined up to take this job. Nah, look, we'll 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 open the list again in six months. I'll make sure I'll get your file when they send the files back. So take six months to think about it. 
Six months later, same situation. She called me. I said, no, I'm going to stay. You were still making 16 at that point? Yeah, like 65. I mean, it's all right. A little, yeah, right. A little bit for inflation. So, so you know what she said? She said, John Burnett, I kept your file in my drawer. <laughs> Inst instead of sending all the files back, she was saying that she took a risk, went against procedure, mm -hmm. held on to my file because she loved my background, my story, and I was clean. She said, you can make it here, too. You can rise up. So you didn't make the decision just because it wasn't just about I could eventually make more money over here on Wall Street. It was about your own personal happiness, too. It was. Yeah, it was all balled into one. OK. But more so, God said that he would he would be with me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and honestly, I, that looking back at that, of course, that was smart because you trust in God. Right. But that was the, one of the dumbest things I've ever <laughs> did. That was the right decision. But when you apply common sense, that is the stupidest thing that you would do. You've got nothing. Mm -hmm. But you also think when you analyze that and when your viewers analyze this and hear this, you're talking to this guy's a PK, preacher's right. kid. If God said it and I believe it, somehow it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, I was really sad after I turned it down a second time. The NYPD officer said, all right, I'm going to hold it for another two to three days. If you change your mind, call she me She gave you a little more time. Yeah, a little more time. She didn't call back because they don't really... She did call back to find out, actually. And I said, no. She says, oh, okay. Call back several times. Then the token booth clerk job. I felt I, I, I uh, took a test when I was 21. They both called me at the same time. I turned both of them down. This actually sounds crazy to me, like now, because people work so hard to get on Wall Street. And once you're in it, I mean, unless you're going to a startup or a VC fund, like that's what you do. So the fact that you even like were considering the move, it was a different time, but it's crazy I, to me. But I had that, no education, no yeah. formal education, no pathway. And let me tell you, it was a really down time for me because it was several years before an opportunity came up. Mm -hmm. And that was a really hard mentally. I was sad. I cried a lot because I felt like a fool. So... During that time, you're churning in the same position and no one's saying to you. Well, I was you, given, given more responsibility okay. in terms of larger offices, more complex things, more decisions to make. But I said, you know what? <laughs> I had to roll up my sleeves and, and hustle. And I got to the point where my supervisor didn't even need to give me direction mm -hmm. when she said, Hey, JP, where are we? I was, where are we? Before she even finished, I already had the answer. So I was actually backing up the most senior people when they went on vacation. Okay. Then I went for another opportunity that was several levels higher in a different department. Didn't get that job. The person that they ended up giving the job to came from another department. And they and I was recommended because I was the runner up. Mm -hmm. Just give John the job. I was salty. I'm like, I didn't get the job. Now nah, you offer me her job? What's going on with that? Pure ego, right? He said, John, it's a really good job. So I took it. And I, just, I was happy to take it. Mm -hmm. More responsibility, different area. It was an elevate, elevated position, working with all operations. I learned all back office, all back office. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get any extra money. I got a point oh one. It was like ridiculous because I didn't ask. Right. And that's he said, John, you want more money? You got to ask. I'm like, okay, it'll never happen again. From that point forward, that was my lesson. I I even pushed headhunters years later out of the way. I said, no one negotiates my deal. I negotiate my own deal. That's not how it works. Yes, it is what John Fernandez does. And not only did I, not only did I 
that I use their services, but I then negotiated with them to give me a piece of their cut just to take the job. Why am I not surprised? So, so, so fast forward it. I got that job and that job led to getting out of operations into compliance and risk, working with the legal department. And then that's when things started taking off. Mm -hmm. So things took off for you and maybe the lack of formal education was not so much of a hindrance, but you still chose to go back to school, correct? Yes. All right. Fast forward really quickly. Mm -hmm. So getting that job and risk compliance and so forth, I I had my sister pray with me. And she asked me, how much do you want to make? I was like, I thought that was a ridiculous question that, you know, bring that to God. I said, I just threw it out there, $25,000. That's what we prayed for. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, I got the job. It was $23,500. i am like, God, close enough. We rocking. <laughs> right? Next thing you know, two pay cycles go through, no bump. So I went to my manager. I'm like, what happened? She said, oh, we forgot to send the paperwork in. I'm like, what is this? I didn't say that to mm-hmm. her. She said, then, she, she, then like an hour, uh, like 30 minutes later, she said, okay, you have to walk this over now if you want it in your next check or I'll send it in inter-office. It gets there tomorrow. Which one do you want? I'll walk it over. On my way over, I called her everything except the <laughs> child of God. That <laughs> I have to walk my own paperwork over. You, you missed two pay cycles. I was livid. Walked over to HR. And because not too many Black people worked in that area, mm-hmm. the Black HR lady just struck up a conversation. Then we started talking. And I let her know, yeah, I passed up this. I passed up, you know, uh, the correction officer's job. This is how I got started. She loved the story. And because it was faith-based, we started talking. She said, wait a minute. I told her about my, how my sister prayed for 25000 She says, wait a second. Looked on her wall. Oh, next year budget. For that grade is 25000 but I can't give it to you this year because it's next year's budget. Wait a minute. She called my manager. You know, it's late in the year. It's like, it was like October mm-hmm. or whatever, or September. Uh, what do you want to do? Next year's budget this year. That's like, I told her not to call. Like, it's going to be, these people are cheap, right? Hold on. Went and spoke to the big guy. Next thing you know, you got it. 25000 on the head. Wow. I, I almost started crying because here it is. I'm thinking I got shafted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was happy with 23.5. They took, uh, they shafted me. You know, they'll give me retroactive, but I wanted it, you know, the first right. pay cycle. And I was upset that I had to walk my own paperwork over. But look how God worked it out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, right on the butt. All these things just served to build my faith. Right. And things just started accelerating. These are all lessons learned. And then eventually, um, I went to Smith Barney and I worked in several different locations at Smith Barney. My last one was Seven Well Trade Center during 9-11. Wow. And at that time, when I got finally got home, when I saw Seven Well Trade Center collapse, my heart went out to all the people. When I, everyone had evacuated the building, but I was also thinking about the other buildings and wondering if my former co-workers were still alive and so forth. And then later that day, Closer to bedtime, I was wondering, like, wow, I may not even have a job. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that feeling. And I said, wow, I have experience, but I have no degree. So the next thing you know, we had a conference call. Within 48 hours, we were up and running due to disaster recovery and business continuity plans. Then a year later, I got a management job 
at Smith Barney mm-hmm. and I went back to school and I finished a four-year degree in four years while we're leading two divisions at Smith Barney during the day. So did you show up that day on 9-11 yeah. and then evacuated? Okay, so you evacuated, had a moment and said, I'm going to go back to school. And you didn't go just anywhere. You went to NYU. NYU. That's, uh, it's only what, I, this, there was no other place I was mm-hmm. going. That was it. So when you applied to NYU, was that the only school you applied to? Yes. And were you like, I'm getting in no matter no, what? No, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but here's the thing. I went into this Cornell University program, downstate program. Mm -hmm. So I analyzed the program. I said, okay, I can take all these courses, build 48 credits. And then I made sure I got an email. Uh, I sent them the course description at Cornell and said, well, does this transfer into NYU in this program? Yes. So every semester I got the yes emails. Got it. Reason why? Because those in that Cornell program, downstate program, you can earn Cornell credits, but you cannot get a degree. Downstate. Uh, so, but it was only a thousand dollars because I had taken two credits through a corporate program at, at uh, Dean Whittemore and Stanley, like five years prior. So the price went up from seven hundred to a thousand. I said, no, I want the ninety-seven price. So I negotiated <laughs> down to seven hundred dollars <laughs> to get back in the program. He said, well, everyone else is paying a thousand. I want seven hundred. They gave me seven hundred. So seven hundred per class, three credits. Was a huge discount. Mm-hmm. So I said I can take more classes here and 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 eat up the five thousand six thousand dollars and get more value in terms of tuition assistance and reimbursement program. So I did that. I earned uh, I think forty eight or fifty one credits, and all of them transferred over into NYU. Wow. Then I finished up, and I was able to get life experience up to twenty credits. And uh, just finished up in in four years because I wasn't going beyond four years. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the toughest periods of my professional career because Wall Street was under attack by Elliot Spitzer and so forth. And it was a nightmare. But I I withstood that, led my my divisions and went to school at night, got all my work done and finished with dual honors during that time period. So you are managing all this at work, get these degrees. When you finished, were you like, Yes, this is it. I'm going to be a Wall Street guy forever. Like I, I've accomplished I was that. A little, I was a little. De- I think I was a little down. Maybe really? a little depressed after that. Why? Because finishing a four year degree in four years mm-hmm. while working full time in a management job on Wall Street as a black man, where you had to think of every scenario to not only be successful but also watch it back and everything else. Right. You know, it it was tough. Right. I had good. I had good coworkers and so forth. But you 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 can never be. One hundred percent comfortable. You always have to have an uneasiness to make sure that you've you've dotted every I and crossed every T. So that was one of the toughest things. But in four years, that was hard. Mm-hmm. And I was going so fast, getting things done. I was like, "Wow, it's over." It's like I wanted to keep going. Which is kind of the whole twenty sixer concept. We get a little down when things are on. When you finally finally accomplish something, it's now is and now it's time to set the next I, set of goals. Because I, of course, you want to get to the the destination, but the journey is juicy, mm-hmm. right? So I took a year off and I did my MBA downstate. Did your parents get to see you graduate? My mom passed away uh, the the year before, uh, about six months prior, actually eight months prior. And, uh, but she knew, she knew I was going to finish. She, she just, she always called me her number seven. And I never knew why until I was in my twenties. Mm-hmm. She's always signed the birthday card, my number seven. Uh, because she risked her life. My mom, my mom, and my father were both told 
that at 43 years old, that's how old my mom was, uh, that she already had six kids and she really didn't need a seventh. At, and risking the seventh, having the seventh, she's risking her own life at 43 years old. So they wanted her to have an abortion. Wow. Because six was enough and her health risk. But my, my mother and father's values, no, we have in the seven. If you can feed six, you can feed seven. So she took that own risk and valued life. And uh, I'm glad that they had God in their life. And that, that was their value. And I'm here today. Did you have pain over the fact that she didn't see you here in human, you know, and, and as an, an, an I'm sure she saw it. If we're talking, if we're spiritual beings and, and all of that. Not at all. But in human form. No pain whatsoever. No pain whatsoever. Here's why. The year before she passed away, she had uh, heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And the doctor asked her, do you want to be resuscitated? And she hesitated. I'm like, Mom, what are you? And she had, they had given her oxygen, preparing her for the surgery. I'm like, well, maybe she doesn't understand. So I tried to explain. She said, I understand. Well, why are you hesitating? She grabbed my hand. She said, I'll stay a little while longer, Johnny. And I said, okay, Mom. I said, you can die, but you're going to die Anytime May 12th or after, because mm -hmm. May 11th, I graduate in 2006, right? You got to understand my family. <laughs> it's a lot of humor. Right. So we chuckled and uh, she had already stayed on, right? She was ready to go. She was suffering. Health wasn't that great. Uh, so I couldn't be selfish. Mm -hmm. But she knew I was going to finish. No doubt. And then my father passed away a few months afterwards. Really? And let me tell you, my father was old school. Like, you ever watched the movie Fences? Yes. That's my dad. That was your dad? Like, but, 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 but Denzel's part was low key. <laughs> I didn't get three strikes. A watered down version of your dad. Okay. As soon as you picked up the bat, I mean, before you even got, you didn't even get to the plate. <laughs> there was no three strikes. But um, my dad, even my, every graduation, my dad was never there. He's always work or had to get prepared for work. So he didn't come to your graduations? Uh, it, he was... He, I think the high school he did, but mm -hmm. he's like, I got to go to work. When it, well, the whole family went out to eat. He's like, no, I got to go to work early in the morning, morning. Did he say, I'm proud of you, son? I don't recall that. Mm -hmm. He just, he shook my hand. But you got to understand traditionalists. Right. They don't give you a handshake for, for, for meaningless things. A handshake meant thing, meant mm -hmm. something great. So when it came down to graduating NYU, uh, I almost cried that night. Because after the graduation, I expected him, you know, to go home, even though he was retired, he was older, because uh, my brother had drove, driven him to Manhattan. And he said, uh, I said, Dad, I said, David, he worked two jobs, my brother. Mm -hmm. And I knew he had to go to his second job. He probably didn't get any sleep that night. And I said, David, you stay? He said, of course. I said, uh, but I, he said, but I, but I have to drive Dad home. I said, Dad, I said, you know, uh, David's ready for you. He says, I'm staying. If you want me to stay, yes. And my dad's health was not great at all. Mm -hmm. And we all went out to eat and we all went, out. My, my, my sister planned the whole thing with my girlfriend at the time and they were all around the table and they all had something great to say too. My best friends were there, family. And when it came down to my dad, he was struggling to stand up. I said, dad, you don't have to stand up. I'm gonna stand up. <laughs> End of conversation. He stood up. I can't even tell you what he said. Why? Because my head was down and I was trying not to cry because mm -hmm. my dad stood up and, and I'm going to try not to cry right now. Stood up and he had great things to say. I didn't hear great things from my father. Not like that day. I always heard it through my mom. 
yeah, we were all over such and such, and we were there. And my dad, your dad was like, yeah, my son, he flies over, and he's down on Wall Street, he's this. But he never said it to me. And that day he stood up and he, and he, and he, and he said what he said. I can't, even, I can't even remember. In that moment, or now looking back on it, do you think that there was a void there before then because he didn't say it to you? You know, the thing is, it's old school. Mm-hmm. I did such and such. Well, you should be doing that anyway. It was always like, what do you, you want a reward for doing something you should be doing? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I mean, we could spend hours just talking about how hard my mom and dad had it. And in hearing those stories from my dad, I'm like, well, you know, I'd be angry too mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> right. Thinking about in the big picture, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I think about how can I complain? My dad raised kids start to raise kids when when he was a dishwasher and then the cook used to purposely burn the pots put an empty pot after the food is emptied empty pot on the stove turn the pilot up high let it burn inside so my father would have to work three times as hard because he noticed that my father was watching him on how he prepared the food wow. so my father figured out I got to work three times as fast cuz I'm going to learn how to cook and it got to the point where the guy felt guilty. Come over here. I'll teach you how to make soup. He taught him how to make soup, and he taught him how to cook other things. Next thing you know, my father got a job as a short-order cook and worked his way up to being a chef at a hospital. That's amazing. So, he, again, hearing those stories, and, and my father, he never wanted credit for doing any, like, that's what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But telling those stories helped us to understand many times you have to do what you have to do. That's why I hear my mom cleaning floors and cleaning rich people's homes, you know, um, before she even married my dad. Like, you know what? Passing out flyers, cleaning the toilet, sweeping the floors. That's not an issue for me. Mm-hmm. That's, that, if people talk about immigr- immigrants doing that, coming to this country, that's how my parents got started. That's not where they ended, though. Right. And that's not where I ended. There's dignity and work. And, and, if, and, and through the passion that I showed, just collecting carts. That, if I didn't show the passion collecting cart, shopping carts, who knows? I may have never been brought in to be a cashier. And then showing passion there, I probably would have never been brought in to work with the bookkeeper and the store manager. And those skills helped me get into Dean Witter. Mm-hmm. And that work ethic. So these are the things that we need to be teaching our community. Because in other communities, they're working those principles. Sure. So your whole story really reflects the spirit of our show. But you know, I'm going to ask the question anyway. Tell me about a specific time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Well, there's a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of examples. But I, I think the, the, the most interesting, you know, I get upset over stupid stuff. Like, mm-hmm. like little small things, right? Major stuff. I'm calm as a cucumber. During 9-11, they had us in the building. The The metal pieces of the plane was falling, so they had to assess, you know, safety. So they let us out through the freight entrance. When I when I exited the freight entrance, and I'm looking at, because I was also there during 93, during the bombing. Wow. So I was in five-wheel trade during the bombing, seven-wheel trade during the attack. So I'm looking, I'm like, wow, there's two planes in the World Trade Center. And it's funny how I didn't hear any sound because I'm looking and analyzing. I said, wait a minute, that thing might collapse because the jet fuel, the intensity of the heat, either full collapse or slide off. Mm -hmm. 
from the top. And then I saw this man. It's almost like I zoomed in. He had khakis, a, uh, a blue shirt, and a yellow tie. And I saw him falling. And then, you know, somewhere around the 30th floor, because there was, you know, um, another building, I didn't see him anymore. And then that's when I was like, wow, I'll probably get out of here, right? So I'm casually walking, figuring stuff out. And other people just kept asking me. They were crying hysterical. How do I get home? And I was helping other people. I just had a calmness and a peace. That's powerful. And I was helping other people figure out how they're going to get home. And I was also strategizing. If I was a terrorist, I would blow out all the bridges and all the tunnels. So I said, wow, I might be trapped on in Manhattan, but I won't take the Brooklyn Bridge. I'll walk up to the 59th Street Bridge and take that bridge if it's safe when I get there. But I'll stay away from Empire State. I was strategizing everything, telling people how to, you know, pathway to get home and, and so forth and what they should do. And uh, that was the most uh, trying moment because I had compassion for people that are working in those other buildings, people that survived, who were trying to figure out how to get home but also at the same time trying to figure out how I was going to get home, but putting other people ahead of me. Do you ever have concern that it could happen again? Another terrorist attack here in New York? My thing, but before I got to Canal Street, there was uh, a postal uh, service worker, and he was saying, I forgot what he was saying, but I could tell that he was a believer. Mm -hmm. And when I was passing him, I said, who knows, bro? It could be a seal. That, this could be a seal broken that's mentioned in Revelation or a trumpet. I have no idea. But I think it's going to usher in something completely new, leading up to end times. Mm -hmm. Because most people that just watched the news stories and didn't experience 93, they said, we got it wrong this time. We'll be back. So I wasn't so, while, while when the first plane hit, I was like, that's terrorism. No, no, it could be an accident. No, it's terrorism. Mm -hmm. No pilot is going to go directly into the building. This, it's an island. There's water all around. If anything, you know there's no way out. You drive it right into the water. You don't kill other people's lives crashing into right. a plane. It has to be terrorism. Then when the second plane hit, okay, it's terrorism. I'm like, I already told you that. So um, that was that was the most challenging time, time period. So we know that you have to get out of here, and we didn't even get into politics and current events and all that great stuff. So I'm just going to ask, while we're recording, will you, will you come do a part two? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So here's what and we'll three. do. <laughs> we could do five and six with you, John, I know. Um, so we'll pause it here okay. and we'll pick this conversation up because I do want to hear your views um, on what's going on in the world right now. Right. <laughs> but but, but it, it's, it's going to be rooted and grounded on faith, mm -hmm. understanding of, of economics and finance, and then combining those two lenses for a 2020 view on what we should be doing Okay. as a people. All right. So... To our listeners, we're going to pause it here and pick this conversation up in a part two. But in the interim, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovel. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.